This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and thank you for joining us on another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can hear new episodes every Thursday. All you have to do is subscribe. This week we're taking a closer look at the London property Ranger's House, whose collection we covered in episode 156. But today we're focusing on some of its past residents and on its use as a filming location for the Netflix period drama Bridgerton, which is now into its second series. Joining us to talk about both of those aspects are Dr. Megan Leyland, Senior Properties Historian, and Kingston Miles, who is Head of Commercial Development. Hello. Hi. Let's start with the uh, hosier phase of Ranger's House, which will make itself evident as we explain what that is. Uh, Fans of Bridgerton will be familiar with this red brick facade of the family home. But who built this and what can it tell us, Megan? Ranger's House, as with so many of our properties, has evolved over time. And what you see on Bridgerton is the product of few additions and alterations over hundreds of years. But that really distinctive core of the facade, that beautiful bright red brick that viewers are probably most familiar with, was built in the early 1720s. And on either side, there are some extensions from the later 18th century. And often facades of buildings can tell us a great deal about their owners, no doubt, as they do in the series of the owners, the Bridgertons. But a clue as to the original builder of that 1720s red brick house can be seen above the doorway of Ranger's house. There is a head of a sea god, probably Neptune. And this is a reference to the nautical credentials of the builder, Captain, later Admiral Francis Hosier. Now, he joined the Navy really quite young, around the age of 12, and he slowly rose through the ranks, becoming a lieutenant commander, and in around 1722 or 3, vice admiral of the Blue. And by about 1723, so quite possibly in response to this sort of increase in status, so that's almost nearly 300, coming on 300 years ago, he demolished a house on the site of Rangers and built a handsome red brick villa of his own. And, you know, it was such a good place for someone with naval connections to build. It's sort of on the edge of Greenwich Park, looking out onto Blackheath. There's easy access to ships on the River Thames and the Royal Hospital for Seamen nearby. And being a naval man, did this hosier have much time to enjoy his new home? Because one might imagine that he was often at sea. Unfortunately, he didn't. Not only was he at sea, but very sadly, around four years after he built his home, he actually died. And it's um, quite a dramatic and sad death, really. In March 1726, he was sent with 20 ships to blockade Portobello, so that's modern-day Panama, to prevent the Spanish shipping gold to fund its wars. And, you know, at the time, Britain wasn't officially at war with Spain, so he couldn't just go and capture the port and instead spent months and months sort of hanging around at sea. And that really is a recipe for disease. (laughs) They didn't really have fresh supplies and along with 4,000 other men, he actually died of tropical fever in 1727. So really, he didn't really get a great deal of time at all to enjoy this home he'd built. Right. So people are probably wondering what happened to the property after his death at sea. So as ever, there was a bit of a legal dispute between members of his family. But in 1740, the lease was sold to John Stanhope. And on his death in 1748, it passed to his elder brother, Philip Dornus Stanhope, 4th Earl of Chesterfield. And at the time, actually, it's not known as Ranger's House, it's Chesterfield House. And he's probably one of the better known residents during the house's history. 
Now, we're into this Chesterfield House phase. Previously, it was the Hosier phase. Who was this Philip Stanhope then, this fourth Earl of Chesterfield? What was his role in society? Well, he was a politician and diplomat, and he had quite an accomplished career. He was ambassador to The Hague, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, Secretary of State for the Northern Department. But actually, by the time he inherits Ranger's house, he's sort of gradually withdrawing from politics and public life. And this was in part because, you know, it's quite stressful. And he writes of having some philosophical quiet, which I think Ranger's actually came to, um, to give him in his life. Despite his stressful political life, did Lord Chesterfield have quite an enjoyable time, though, at Ranger's house? He did. And we're quite lucky, actually, because he wrote a lot of letters, as many in the period did in the 18th century, prolific letter writers. He spent his summers there and he really began to value it as a retreat. He even called it his hermitage at one point. And he indulged many of his interests there. So that wing I mentioned added to that red brick villa of Hosier's earlier actually was built to house his enormous painting collection. He was a great collector of the old masters and it was full of pictures as it ought to be and capital ones, he wrote. And it enjoyed the three finest prospects in the world, so looking out over to the surrounding landscape. And he entertained visitors and enjoyed occupations such as walking, reading and gardening. The latter two, he wrote, my former youth and spirits would have despised, but which now stand in the stead of pleasures with me. So he seems to have found some of that philosophical quiet there. I gather that uh, Lord Chesterfield was also a keen gardener. Is that right? He, he was, and he was seized, as he put it, by the furor hortensis or gardening madness, which I kind of love, garden madness. <laughs> I think during lockdown time, a lot of people ended up doing some a lot of gardening, a bit of furor hortensis. And talking to plants, yes, yeah, so I expect. Yeah, well, and that is exactly what he wrote, he said he did. He um, wrote of the pleasures which he gained in gardening and sort of the solace of trifling in his garden. And as he said, I converse with my equals, my vegetables. And on another occasion, he wrote, I vegetate with the vegetables and crawl with the insects. And he seemed to have been quite a good gardener, really. He was grew a lot of imported fruits, such as pineapples and cantaloupe melons. And on the latter, he even offered some of his friends advice about how to cultivate them. As well as being this gardener who talks to his plants, Lord Chesterfield liked writing letters. What was the content of these letters, Megan? It wasn't just advice on cultivating melons, um, as we've heard of his great fruit passion. In fact, he's probably actually best known for his letters of advice to his illegitimate son, Philip. And there were a lot of these. Talk about an overbearing parent. He wrote about 448 letters when his son was aged between five and 36. And something like 200 of these were written from Ranger's house um, in Blackheath. They're really interesting to read. They cover things such as the classics, arts, clothes, manners, learning, basically everything that his son could need to survive in the brutal world of politicians, courtiers and diplomats. And he actually even gives advice on advice, which is probably my favourite bit in his letters where he says, advice is seldom welcome and those who want it the most always like it the least. So already with these two owners of Ranger's House and obviously in its previous guise as Chesterfield House, we're seeing a lot of difference compared to the family, the Bridgerton family, who live in the property in the Netflix series. But as we continue our brief history of Rangers, after Chesterfield's death, 
the house passes through several owners before coming to Augusta, who is Dower Duchess of Brunswick. This brings us to the period in which Bridgerton is actually set in 1813, doesn't it? It does indeed. So Bridgerton is set in the Regency era. So that is when the Prince of Wales, future George IV, acted as regent from 1811 to 1820. So that effectively meant he ruled in place of his, his sick father, George III. And his mother, Queen Charlotte, who's sort of so prominently portrayed in Bridgerton, served as queen consort. So Bridgerton starts in about 1813. And this actually dovetails with this sort of end of the occupation of Augusta Dowager Duchess of Brunswick. She was sister of George III, so therefore sister-in-law of Queen Charlotte, who we encounter in Bridgerton. And she came to reside at Rangers in 1807 until her death in March 1813. And I think during her residency, there is certainly some of the intrigue, gossip and royal interest that we have come to love from the Netflix series. She came to England from Brunswick in 1807 after the death of her husband, fleeing from the French army. And the Duchess seems to have initially resided with her daughter. So her daughter was Caroline, Princess of Wales, and she lived at Montague House. And then the Duchess bought the house or leased the house next door. So the house next door was Ranger's house. So you've got mother and daughter living next door to each other. But was really, if you want a bit of scandal, <laughs> the Regency era... Caroline, Princess of Wales, so that's her daughter, moved to Blackheath after the separation from her husband in 1796. And her husband was the future George IV. And there was a lot of intrigue sort of surrounding their marriage. And even an investigation called the Delicate Investigation into her infidelity in a sort of reported pregnancy. And at Blackheath, she really established a sort of rival royal court, no doubt aggrandised by the appearance of her mother, the Duchess of Brunswick, who resided at Brunswick's house, later Ranger's house. And it really sort of gave the area this fashionable status with um, newspapers reporting the king coming to Blackheath to see his sister. And sort of there's an entertainment reported in the papers in August 1807 where the Princess of Wales, this is at Montague House, sort of entertains and many persons of fashions, it wrote, continued to promenade in the grove before Her Royal Highness's door and along the side of Blackheath to a late hour. So you kind of get that sense of, you know, the great and good coalescing around these properties. Mm. But it was, um, it was in September 1807 that the Duchess was reported to have taken Ranger's house. And again, the newspapers are a great source of information about what was going on. And we sort of see the importance of Prince culture in Bridgerton as well, don't we? And the papers report what the Duchess is doing at Ranger's house at the time. Um, apparently it went underwent a complete repair and is now spacious, elegant and uniform, as one article says. And apparently her home was connected with her daughters next door by a private communication between them, perhaps suggesting their sort of relationship. They enclosed parts of Greenwich Park um, for some privacy. And as I said, the papers report that many visitors who came to Rangers and Montague next door and the entertainments the Duchess put on, including large and elegant dinner parties, a grand public breakfast, as well as really magnificent ones hosted by the princess. They seem to have often sort of been in and out of each other's houses, unsurprisingly. And these could be on a huge scale. The, there's one, the Princess of Wales Grand Fete in June 1808, and it actually seems to have taken in parts of Ranger's House and Brunswick House and Montague House next door. 
and guests had to go, and I'm quoting here, via a covered way of 100 yards supported by Gothic arches and sides covered with oaks and shrubs, illuminated with a profusion of lamps. They had to go there to get to one of five or the fifth supper room at this entertainment at her royal mother's, the Duchess of Brunswick, whose covers were laid for nearly 100. So that's set out for 100 people. Goodness me. I, I know, it's really <laughs> grand. And it was decorated with portraits of the kings and queen on the table. And then another fate hosted by the Princess of Wales at Montague House for the celebration of her mother's birthday in August 1808 was described as the most splendid and elegant entertainment that had been witnessed during the present season. And in Bridgerton, we hear all about these entertainments in the season and um, who the great and good were and who appeared there. So I think, you know, we do get a bit of a sense of some of the drama that went on in Bridgerton here at what would become Ranger's House and the house next door, Montague House. Yes. So when it's Brunswick House, it's really in that uh, flavour of what Bridgerton is, you know, when you see it on on your TV screen. It's quite sort of um, lavish, shall we say, and um, very Regency. Whereas before, under Lord Chesterfield and under Hosier, the naval man, we have very different phases there. So I think that's an interesting development across those time periods. Yeah, it is. And I think it's it's interesting we, how we see these sort of connections between some of the historical figures portrayed in Bridgerton. And actually, there are some ties in to the property. So you do really get a hint of it. And I think it's, it's great fun reading those accounts from the time and hearing about the effort they went to to beautify these properties when everyone came to visit and sort of the grandeur that took place there. Absolutely. It sounds like it was a bit of a pleasure palace as well as a home really and an entertainment venue yeah that's very interesting and no doubt that gallery which chesterfield built provided a wonderful location (laughs) yes yes definitely so what happened after the duchess of brunswick's death so we we get a bit of a bit of a change it's being used still as a, a private residence but for a particular kind of resident so the not long after the duchess died it became a grace and favor residence for the grangers of greenwich park and that's where the name comes from. And they're not quite going out ranging around the park. This was a honorary position granted to sort of minor royals or honoured servants and came with a title and a residence. So in 1815, so we're still in that Regency period, Princess Sophia Matilda became the first ranger to occupy this property. Okay. And how much do we know about the life of her? Princess Sophia Matilda was the niece of George III, And, you know, like the Duchess before her, did her updates and repairs to Rangers to make it to her taste. And we have a sales catalogue after her death, which gives us an idea of the rich decoration and elegant furnishing she filled it with. We think she had about 17 servants there who facilitated her, her lifestyle. We do not currently know a huge amount of how she used Rangers. But what does come through and what you do read about her is that she was a charitable and sort of liberal benefactor of the poor and it comes out particularly in her death where she actually lays in state at ranger's house and they decorate one of the rooms in black cloth and light it with wax candles and basically people flock to see her and flock to um her funeral procession and she's described in one account as a meek spirit of as noble charity as ever graced the hand of royalty so it seems like Rangers became a place of a rather wonderful woman, a very charitable woman who was much admired by those um, in the community. Right. So when visitors 
go today to the property, can they see the room in which she laid in state? It's unfortunately not covered in black cloth and lit with wax no. candles. I think it might be the dining room from the description, but right. uh, Rangers looks quite different today. It's not quite set up as a family home anymore. But um, we can imagine these stories and the various different owners bringing their stamp to it as it has a stamp today. Absolutely. Now, after the death of Princess Sophia Matilda in 1844, how do you summarise the rest of the Rangers house story up until today? Well, it's so hard to summarise because, as you've heard, the people who live there are fascinating. I think they could have a podcast on their own, each of them. And I think that continues throughout its history. But afterwards, we have some other really fascinating figures, such as the Foreign Secretary, George Hamilton, Gordon Firth, Earl of Aberdeen. We have royalty, Prince Arthur of Connaught, so that's the third son of Queen Victoria, Field Marshal Lord Worsley. But then it, it's transferred by Queen Victoria to the Commissioners of the Woods uh, Forests in 1897 in an exchange for the restoration of Kensington Palace. So really at that point is not a residence, it ceases and from that point. And in 1902, the London County Council bought rangers for the purpose of public recreation. And after being put to a number of uses, including during both world wars, it passed from the Greater London Council into the care of English heritage in 1986. And if we skip ahead in the story a little bit more recently, we're going to hear it was a film location. <laughs> yes, well, that brings us now to talk to Kingston. Just remind us, Kingston, what your job is in English heritage and how you're involved in, obviously, us talking to you about Bridgerton today. Sure, yes. Yeah. So I'm head of commercial development, which means I oversee a number of business areas within English heritage that drive generating commercial income so that we can fulfil our objective as a charity for conservation and stewardship. And one of those commercial business areas is our venue hire team. And within that, we're lucky enough to work with a number of clients that use sites like Rangers House as uh, film and uh, high-end TV uh, locations. So for people who are um, really keen on the series, and this is why they're listening to this podcast, they are fans of Bridgerton. But before the series, how, how often was Rangers House used as a dramatic backdrop on screen? Unlike some of our other properties, Ranger's House is a little less seen on screen. It was previously used in a BBC drama called Quacks, and it actually featured in the background of the 2013 film Bell, which was uh, shining a light on the life of Dido Bell. Who lived Not at Kenwood in, in London. Correct, yeah. indeed. So, you know, quite exciting that we're in the background of that and, and obviously links back to one of our other properties, but not much more than that for those fans of the site in particular. Okay, but it really came into its own, obviously, through the Netflix series Bridgerton. When was English Heritage then first approached about Rangers House being used for the series? Sure. So we all know that Bridgerton came out on Christmas Day in 2020, but actually we first spoke to the production company way back in the summer of 2019. So quite a long lead in time to be able to create something so beautiful. What role then does Ranger's House play in the series? Well, for the fans of the series, they'll know that Ranger's House stars as one of the two properties uh, owned by the Bridgerton family and is sort of set as their London house, uh, occupied sort of for socialising and, uh, you know, quite in keeping with some of the points Megan's just touched on. And it features as a house shown on screen in Mayfair's Grosvenor Square. I see. So a completely different location from where it is currently in the Royal Borough of Greenwich. Very much so. And can you describe how the house appears on screen and how it's been 
dressed. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's that sort of quintessentially British image that that house portrays in Bridgerton. Everybody knows it as the sort of the house with the wisteria on the outside. So that's the key part of dressing that property for the shoot. There's a grand sort of gravel area outside the front as well, which has been put down specially for the series, which we don't have in reality, do we? No, we don't. You know, and, and obviously, as you touched on earlier, it's not set on Grosvenor Square in Mayfair. So it's a, a careful balance of dressing the set on scene and then, of course, some post-production work that Netflix put into making it look as great as it does. Yes, of course. Now, Megan, the dressing of Ranger's house as Bridgerton House is very decorative. Would Ranger's have ever looked like this in the past? Yes, yeah, wonderfully decorative and romantic, isn't it? It gives it such a distinctive appearance. We do know a little bit about how Rangers was decorated in the past. We know quite a bit about sort of the interiors from inventories and sales catalogues and things like that. And I did go and desperately um, look for some wisteria, but unfortunately I came up I came up without any. <laughs> a description and an engraving from 1808 shows what it would have looked like when it was the Duchess of Brunswick's house that we just heard about. It talks about it beautifully embowed by two rows of stately trees with an opening that um, affords a view of the house. But the frontage is very much the red brick we are familiar with, but not perhaps covered in the plants. And indeed, Wisteria is actually a new introduction in in the Regency era. And the entrance is slightly different too. Today, the iron gates in the front of the house, though 18th century actually added in 1964. So that frontage has evolved over time but I think you know it's quite nice we talked earlier about those grand entertainments and floor decorations in preparation for that would have been you know something familiar at the time and is described in detail in some of the accounts we have and you know whether it's the plants in the gardens or those adorned with lamps or indeed the aromatic flowers used in the dining room so I imagine there would have been a the occasional floral dressing every once in a while. So effectively, what we're seeing on screen is something that is quite, it's a slightly exaggerated perception of the Regency period. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. And unfortunately, we, Rangers, we don't know ever quite look like that. But um, I think it's kind of lovely to imagine the drama and a bit of the decadence, isn't it? Hmm. We've heard how Rangers House is set dressed for the series for Bridgerton. But what other types of spaces are used on shoots? And does this vary for other TV and film projects? Yeah, I mean, we're really lucky that we've got this national portfolio of sites that are really attractive to lots of different clients. And it does indeed vary from many period dramas that have shot with us at lots of locations that members and viewers will have spotted right through to live broadcasts and then of course we feature as a location in a number of blockbuster movies i think the one thing that all of those uh, have in common is they've chosen to shoot with us because our sites are naturally very opulent and attractive and you know it tends to be what those productions can add to the sites to bring them to life in the context of their story there's never really a need to completely change or adjust our properties or locations because they do so well of their own accord. There must be quite a lot of work involved in preparing a house like Granger's house for a crew to turn up. So what sort of work goes on from English Heritage's side of things to get a property ready for a massive film crew to, to descend and film for a, for a while? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge amount of work and a huge network of stakeholders that are involved. So 
you know, we have a range of venue hire operations experts that are great at leading, bringing all of those individuals together. But it can be conversations with our curatorial and conservation teams about ensuring that we're going to protect elements of the collection and the monument. And also conversations with our site operations teams. You know, it's quite clear that when something as great as this is happening at ranges, it can't be open to visitors. So we need to carefully plan how that's going to be communicated and executed on the ground. And then, of course, we get to work with our curators, historians, literally probably every department within the organisation at some point has an opportunity to be involved in sort of filming a location hire of this scale. So it just suddenly becomes a hive of activity. I mean, how many trucks are turning up, for instance? Well, a shoot of this size, you know, you can have a crew of up to 150 people. You can have a nearby unit base. So it can really vary. But um, there's some really hefty pieces of kit and equipment that are needed to deliver this safely. So, yeah, it it can vary from shoot to shoot. But it is a, a small moving village, if you like. Yes. And lots of tea and coffee to keep people motivated through uh, what can be some quite long um, and hard days. But um, crews are great at bringing everything they need with them and especially to our more remote sites and locations. When did the cast and crew film Series 1 at Ranger's House? So Series 1 back in 2019. And those that know a little bit about filming will know that it's often shot in lots of different segments or lots of different blocks. So we're very lucky that we we get to work with Netflix and Bridgerton as the house appears quite prolifically throughout series one and indeed through series two as well. Right. So it's basically having to completely redress the sets so that it looks the same as it did in previous shots and then come back and do it all again another time. So it's, it's quite a lot of packing up and I suppose taking photographs and ensuring everything is accurate. Yeah, and you tend to find that productions and film companies are, they are experts at recreating their their scenes and their sets when they shoot, you know, additional series or if they have to recapture shots. So we're really lucky to work with some real great industry sort of leads on this. So for fans who are now watching season two on Netflix of Bridgerton, when did the filming of that take place at Ranger's house? Yeah, well, as you'll know, we obviously had the COVID-19 pandemic and lots of restrictions on movement and and what activity could take place filming was one of those which could take place safely so we've been shooting season two in a couple of blocks and you know most recently people would have seen in the press we had Bridgeton filming with us in november of last year and this is all exterior shots isn't it of ranger's house it is yeah so there's there's two locations used at ranger's house everybody will know the outside scene with the wisteria in the front of the property And also there's a scene shot uh, in the garden uh, with a very carefully hung swing that sits sort of in shot. So we use the sort of the front and then the small garden at the back of ranges as well. How do a site's usual operations continue to take place then when there is a shoot happening? That must be, I I expect there's a few English heritage um, curators or general staff trying to stay out of shot really and stay well behaved. Yeah, I mean, we're really lucky that everybody's on board with using our sites as as filming locations and we know the value it brings to both highlighting these historic properties to new audiences like Bridgerton has and also in being able to generate sort of commercial income for the charity. With a smaller site like Rangers, obviously we close that to the public and it becomes sort of all consumed by the, the film shoot. But with some of our larger sites or sites where we're using perhaps the Orangery at Rest Park, then we're able to film around 
members of the public and we create some great filming management plans that mean that visitors can still enjoy you know many elements of the site and the space where we're filming is sort of cordoned off um, and people will recognize that from when they've perhaps been down a nearby high street or there's been a, a shoot near them sort of outside they're still able to get around but just perhaps not everywhere were you down at the property when the filming was taking place for both series one and series two For Bridgerton, unfortunately not. I've got an incredible team of venue hire coordinators that lead um, on the ground alongside our site teams. So didn't get to see it um, other than on screen, but I'm assured it looked absolutely incredible. Yes, and when you did see it on screen, I mean, you must have thought, wow, it's a different place. I mean, you must have felt like, wow, this really feels like another time period now. Yeah, it's breathtaking to see the great work that Netflix have put into showing our site in such an incredible way, for sure. Are there any other English heritage properties that have a starring role in Bridgerton? Yeah, well, those of you that have seen the Aubrey Hall property and the party in the Orangery will indeed recognise that Orangery from our Rest Park site in Luton in Bedfordshire, which features in Bridgerton as well. And lastly, people listening to this podcast are going to be fans of Bridgerton, clearly. Have you been caught up in the Bridgerton sort of frenzy as well, both of you? Well, me personally, I'm, I'm a bit of a Netflix grazer, so I've, uh, I've flicked through a couple of episodes. I think I tend to graze through the programmes that we have made a property available for as a location, so I must indeed get stuck into it because I'm, I'm hearing nothing but great things from colleagues that are avid fans. It's almost part of your job, really, and to watch it back, isn't it? And just see. Yep. <laughs> see what see what we've managed to contribute towards and also see what our visitors talk about. You know, when they come to site, they're excited to tell us that they recognise this from Bridgerton or they'll be walking past the Orangery and you'll hear people at Rest Park say, oh, my gosh, that was in season this and, and that was also in that. So, yeah, that's uh, it's nice to be able to have those conversations with visitors at site for sure. Megan, you're quite a follower of Bridgerton, aren't you? I am. I absolutely chain-watched series one and I haven't got to the second series yet. I didn't want to accidentally slip in any spoilers. <laughs> so I've been saving it, but I will be watching it, no doubt, Saturday weekend. <laughs> chain-watching season two as well. I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, and as season two gets started, I know people will binge-watch these things and they will finish it pretty quickly. So they'll probably be gasping for more. Do we have any inkling yet of a Series 3 and any more location shoots at Rangers House and other English heritage properties? We don't yet, but we're always open to welcoming the Bridgerton crew back to shoot with us. Well, on that note, we will look forward to possible future collaborations between English Heritage and the uh, Netflix team. So thanks both of you for talking to us. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, it's part three of our Hadrian's Wall mini-series. In the fourth century, the material culture that you get is different to that which you get in the third and the second century. And it's taken archaeologists a bit longer to understand how we can look at what's happening in the fourth century in Britain because we're using different materials. Until then, thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>